At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a fantastic show for you today. I have with me Dr. Matt Wixon, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the University of Michigan. He's also the associate chair for diversity and the director of RADAR. And I'm going to let him tell you what RADAR is. But Matt, I'm excited to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me, Jed. Excited to talk to you. So let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about you, how you got where you are, what your practice looks like, and then tell us what radar is and how you got into the idea of starting this. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a Michigander through and through. I was born and raised in a, a little farm town south of the capital called uh, Concord, Michigan. Uh, one of seven kids. I am the middle child, uh, the only person who ended up in medicine, but uh, you know, really, really big family. And then I went to Hope College in Holland, Michigan, on the shores of Lake Michigan, uh, which is uh, near and dear to my heart. I sit on the board of trustees there, and really my life trajectory changed there. I met my wife, decided to become a doctor, and kind of cracked on from that. Uh, after I graduated from Hope back in 2008, I went to the University of Michigan Medical School, where I graduated in 2012, stayed on for residency in anesthesiology, and then did a pain fellowship. I like to joke that my practice, um, I did the pain fellowship and then retired immediately from pain <laughs> clinic. Uh, I love the fellowship, had amazing experience, learned a lot, but just realized that I'm not a clinic guy. So I do get to do a lot of acute pain, which is really fantastic. And I'm on the orthopedic and ambulatory anesthesia team. So I do a lot of blocks, catheters, taking care of high-level athletes, which is a ton of fun. And then my the rest of my time is spent working on diversity uh, issues within our department and medical student resident education, which are really the things that make me come alive and keep me in academic anesthesia. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's just such a privilege to get to work with our learners and try to do better with teaching and and all all the things that we get to do in, in academics that are so so wonderful. Um, so tell us about Radar. What is what does it stand for? And then you know how was it conceived? How did you uh, what, what tell us the story of Radar? Absolutely. Radar is a collaboration between our department and WashU in St. Louis, the Departments of Anesthesia. And it stands for Raising Anesthesiology Diversity and Anti-Racism. So to go back oh, about a year and a half now, Dr. George Mashore, who is the current chair of our department, uh, was named chair. And one of the first things he did was create a new position and appoint me to it as associate chair for diversity. Uh, these are you know, issues that had not yet gripped the nation in the way that they have in the last year. Um, but he had a vision for really transforming our department and transforming the field of anesthesia. And he wanted me to be part of that with him. And I will always be grateful for the opportunity uh, that he's given me. So we, uh, he named me to that position and really said, Matt, let's, let's do this thing. Let's start changing, you know, changing the field. And radar was his brainchild. We pivoted an NIH grant uh, along with one of his collaborators, Dr. Avedon, who is the chair at WashU. Uh, to think about how do we approach this in a systemic way? You know, we've been talking about diversity, both within the field of anesthesia, the field of medicine, greater society for a really, really long time. You know, you can go back 20 years and it's been on everyone's radar, no pun intended. Um, but then when you look at the data, things honestly have not really changed all that much. Uh, you know, we, I was part of a paper a couple of years ago looking at applicants into pediatric anesthesia fellowship uh, by race. And I, I want to make that point that when I talk about diversity, you know, it's racial diversity, but there are other kinds of diversity too. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that and we talk about it and actually that we're really specific when we're talking about diversity. So this is racial diversity. And the paper, if you look at the graphs, despite there being more spaces available and more fellows trained, the demographic breakdown was essentially flat over 20 years. And if you, you know, if you look back even further from 1970s to now, there are less black male doctors now than there were back then. So despite talking about it and thinking it's important, nothing's been changing. So radar is really designed as a, a mechanism to have a systemic approach uh, to diversifying the field. Great. Uh, it's such an incredibly important goal. And is so the is the idea kind of obviously recruitment, retention, promotion, support, right? All these things are, are part of this. Take us through that a little bit. What you know, the, let's start with the recruitment part. How what is the idea of how to improve recruitment? Um, is it starting uh, with just looking at medical schools? Is it, is it starting looking undergrad even before, you know, where are we starting and how do we promote that pipeline all the way up? Absolutely. Uh, fantastic question. So when I think about radar and if you spend time on our website, which is radaranesthesia.org, I think that'll be in the show notes afterwards Absolutely. as well. Yep. Uh, it's a, it's a three pronged approach, uh, as we're getting started. First is thinking about that early, that pipeline. How do we create a pipeline? that's sustainable, it's measurable, and it's actually going to make a difference. So that's the first prong is high school, college, early medical students, both exposing them to the field of anesthesiology, 
um, so that they can start to think, well, there's an anesthesiologist. I didn't even know what they did. That could be a fantastic, you know, career for me. So for example, we recently, um, are engaging with a high school in Flint, Michigan, which is about 45 minutes from here. Uh, and we're going to have a partnership with this high school where we're going to start to spend time with, with the students, showing them what does an anesthesiologist do? Take them to the sim lab for half a day, have lunch, talk about our jobs and how we got here, because it's so important to be able to see someone who looks like you, who maybe had a similar experience to you in the field for you to then say, well, I can do that too. Look at them. They did that. Obviously COVID has restricted our ability to have in-person you know, experiences thus far, but that's the plan is this fall, we're going to have, you know, 30 students interested in medicine from a high school in Flint come spend some time with us. Then from that's, there. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, just that's fantastic. I, I start clearly starting early, right? Because if we just start with medical schools, we're already behind. Exactly. There are so many barriers as you and I know, and I'm sure many people listening know to even getting into medical school, right? We wouldn't have less black male doctors today than we did 45, 50 years ago if those barriers weren't real. And so how do you start addressing them early enough that you can, that you can make a difference? You know, some people would argue high school's too late, but that's where we're going to start because it, it feels manageable and something that we can, we can actually do. And then we're going to pilot. Okay. So what does it look like to talk to middle, middle schoolers? How do we as anesthesiologists get out in our community and show what we do and be a source of mentorship, sponsorship, inspiration. Um, you know, I think it's been easy in our field to say, oh, we're just anesthesiologists. The patients come to us. We find out the day before who's on our queue. What's our role in the community? And I would, I would push back on that a bit and make the argument. We have a, a massive role in the community, especially as we think about being perioperative physicians, right? Thinking of all phases of care that we're able to influence patient care, you know, directly provide for them and indirectly shape policy um, and, you know, move the field forward. So that's one prong of it is thinking about high school, college. So we're partnering with the, the University of Michigan undergrad um, medical society, again, to provide opportunities to be involved with us, to shadow, to do research, things like that. And then we're working with early medical students um, as well. Because anesthesia, as you and I know, is the best job in the world. But most people don't know about it until they're M4s and they're like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that I am here. This is the best thing ever. That's what happened to me. I had no idea I wanted to be an anesthesiologist until I saw it for a week. Um, so that's just so important to get out in front of early learners. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will echo what you just said, which is, you know, I have every year I have at least one fourth year medical student say to me, wait, Dr. Walpaw, you're an ICU attending. I didn't know anesthesiologists could be ICU attendings, you know, and I just want to like bash my head in because how are we not getting this message across? How, do, how is it possible that medical students don't know what it, what, even what anesthesia is and what the subspecialties are and what you can do? We're clearly failing to get this message across. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one thing we're working on. That's kind of one prong. The second prong then is thinking about our residents and our early career faculty. So often I think that we just have a lack of knowledge, right? We don't know 
how to engage with what can be thorny and uncomfortable and difficult you know, issues. And it's hard to say, well, what's, what's my place in it? What can I do to make a difference? And whether that's talking about you know, diversifying the field, you know, what is equity? How do I create an inclusive environment? And then also, you know, we, we can talk a lot about health disparities. And I think you and I both know COVID over the last 15 months has just exposed health disparities that were actually always there, but now they're in the mainstream. You know, CNN's talking about them, major news outlets. You can't, you can't miss the fact that black and brown people are dying at a rate multiple times, you know, their white match cohort. Right. And so how do we as anesthesiologists start addressing, you know, health disparities? And again, I think for a long time, myself included, it's easy to say, look, I just take care of the patients in front of me. I treat everybody the same or I'm colorblind. You know, that's another common, common phrase. And, and I've grown and learned that, no, we shouldn't be colorblind. We should see color and all that that is. And that rich diversity adds both to our teams and to the patients we get to take care of and then start diving into that, leaning into that idea of, no, as an anesthesiologist, I can make a difference. Maybe I do treat people differently and I don't even realize it. Right? That idea of the unconscious bias that we all have, myself included. You know, I'm reminded of that when I when I look back and I'm like, man, I didn't handle that situation very well, or I wasn't very thoughtful in my word choice there. And that's something that we're trying to provide to our residents and our early career faculty is really training around unconscious bias. You know, what are the things that you're doing? How do you evaluate your practice as an anesthesiologist to make sure that you're unbiased in what you do? How do we train ourselves to think about patients differently. You know, we've all been that that jaded resident or faculty who's tired and can use language that isn't thoughtful about a patient, you know, or we can dehumanize the patient to just, you know, the patient with previa in room 12, right. instead of understanding who they are, their specific risk factors. You know, that's another area where I think as anesthesiologists, we can we can make a difference is, you know, maternal mortality. You know, it's hard for me to understand how we're one of the you know, most advanced nations in the world, yet women and babies are dying at a higher rate than our match cohorts again. And then if you were to look at the black and brown population, it is unbelievably higher. Um, so how do we as anesthesiologists lead in that space? And radar is to help us think about how do we lead in that space? How can we, as the individual, contribute to the team and then to the field, you know, to medicine and ultimately patient outcomes? So that's kind of prong two. Yeah. And let me ask you, because I think this is so key, how do you, this is such a, a, a difficult thing, is teaching people about implicit bias when almost by definition, they don't know they have it, right? I mean, if it's implicit, then they may not recognize it. So how do you, how do you do it? Is it, is it, you know, sessions of training? Is it giving examples? Is it, you know, how do you effectively help people recognize what implicit bias is? The fact that they may be part of, they may be doing it. They may be acting on implicit bias without knowing it and then help them figure out ways to do it better. Wonderful question. 
I think there are a couple different ways that you can approach this. And I think as many problems, you kind of have to have a you know multi-pronged approach to it. One is formal training. What is implicit bias? You know, it's learning the language. We've learned so many, you know, a speak essentially, an anesthesia speak, a medical speak. There is a speak as well around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Even understanding what those three things mean um, is so important. So I think formal training in unconscious bias, what is it? How am I contributing to the problem? That's all kind of contained in a, in a formal course, I think. But almost even more importantly, I think it's important for leaders in this space and, and within departments to acknowledge their own biases, to normalize it and create a culture where you can feel safe actually making a mistake and saying the wrong thing or stating, you know what, I think that my bias is showing right now. For example, you know, we really revolutionized how we interview for residency uh, in Michigan. We now have a standardized team of faculty and residents who go through formal training around unconscious bias, best practices for uh, interviewing, you know, more, much more so than just the ACGME rules of around what you can and can't say and, right. and things like that. And it's created a culture now where when we're um, thinking about our rank list or discussing a candidate, our faculty members on the on the team, we call them FIGs, which is the faculty interview group, will say, I felt this interviewing, but I think that I may be biased in in my approach. And instead of it being a, a secret, shameful thing you need to hide or paper over, people now feel really comfortable saying, I think that I may be biased in this. Check me on that. And mm -hmm. it has revolutionized our culture. And I think that is what's so important for, for senior leaders and for everyone to just feel comfortable saying, I think there might be bias here. That is, to me, the key. You can go through all kinds of training, and I think that many health systems now are mandating it. Search committees need to go through it. And that's one part of it. But more importantly is creating a culture where you can make a mistake. You know, I think we've done a, an amazing job of that in anesthesia, where if you make a, a medication error or some other mistake, you don't hide it. You, you come out with it, deal with it. You know, in the moment, you acutely fix the problem that you may or may not have been a part of, and then you do a review afterwards, again, in a way that's not judgmental or to cause shame or embarrassment or, you know, have punitive damages, but to understand what do I need to do differently next time? Yeah, we look at the at the system, right? So so I'm sure right. you're doing the same thing and we're doing this too, is that we say, okay, there was an error and there are a minuscule, you know, percentage where it was something malicious, right? But that's incredibly Correct. rare. Usually it's because the individual meant well, but the system was set up for failure and we need to change the system. And so that's the focus. I agree with you. I think we've done a great job in anesthesiology in moving towards that approach. And it seems the same here. You know, I think one of the real challenges is that you bring up, for example, you know, the issue of white privilege and some white people get very, uh, you know, uh, on edge and they think you're calling me a racist just because I'm white. And, and the idea is, no, no, it's not your fault that you benefit from white privilege, right? I mean, you do, 
but it's not you haven't done anything wrong by being white you didn't choose to be born white right but but you can acknowledge that you have implicit bias everybody has some sort of implicit bias right and it's okay and i love what you're saying here which is that that culture making it okay to say hey yeah like i have bias makes it okay to admit it just like allow you know making it focusing on the system makes it okay to say yeah i gave that wrong medication it happens to be in a vial that looks exactly the same as the one i meant to give you know let's focus on that so saying yes i have bias and that and it's it's okay that's part of being human i'm owning it and i want to figure out how i can improve this and 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 let it affect me less that has to be okay if we make people ashamed to say, yes, I have bias, or if we make people feel like by admitting they have bias, it makes them a bad racist person, then we're just going to alienate them, right? They're, they're going to disengage from this process. They, they do. And then all we do is lose any progress that we may have made along the way. You know, it's, it's interesting you bring up the, you know, the, the term white privilege. And you're right. It's an immediate, you know, turnoff for a segment of the population, both in America and the microcosms of our departments or our hospitals that we that we work in. And so it's just so important to do exactly what you're describing, which is saying like, of course, you're not a bad person because you're white. Just like I'm not a bad person because I'm black. And she's not a bad person because she's of Asian heritage. But we all have something that we do. Similarly, I'm not a bad person because I'm a man. But have I held biases you know, in thinking about women in a traditional role or putting something on them? Yes, I have. And then I had to apologize for it because I realized it afterwards. Um, and it's just, you just have to create a culture. And that's where I think that, you know, that's what radar is trying to do. So our third prong is really prov- targeted towards the senior leaders, the chairs, the people like you, program directors, who are part of driving that culture, of shaping that culture. To me, that's what a, a leader does. Yes, they have very specific policy goals, departmental strategies, things they want to achieve. But to, to me, the best leaders have been ones that are able to set a vision and let those around them and who work for them and with them get them there. And Radar is pushing leaders to say, how do you create that culture? You know, for example, what about your policies? What about your system have led to the state of where we are right now? So the racial diversity within the field of anesthesiology is pretty static over the past couple of decades. What about the way we do business has led to that? And then acknowledging that in a way that's not threatening or you know shaming, but to say, what does it look like to do things differently? For example, you know, the way we interview, we changed how we interview, we train people on how we interview. And then we have a more racially diverse intern class coming in this year than we have ever had in the past. Mm-hmm. So I would say our process was such that we were getting an outcome in the past. And now we've said our outcome, we'd like to, you know, have diversity. And again, Racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, geographic diversity, all types of diversity. So what do we need to change how we do to get that? And that's where senior leaders make policy and decisions and can shape their culture that way. And that's the third prong of radar is really targeted toward those who sit around the table that make the decisions 
to help make change and hope, hopefully inspire them through the work that we're doing and the resources we're providing to say, oh, we can do that too. You know, Michigan did this. What if we tried that here? Or UCSF is doing that. And I bring up UCSF because they're spotlighted right now on the radar anesthesia page for some programming that they're doing. And that's a way that other departments, listeners can get involved is let us know what you're doing. You know, radar is simply a vehicle for growth and for change. And it's my goal is that it becomes a collaborative where, you know, institutions and departments around the country can say, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's not live in our silos that we've always lived in and say, wow, that program over there is doing an amazing thing that I think we could try. Let's try it. Um, so that's one way that people can get involved. Yeah. And, and so that's amazing. And piggybacking off that, as, as you know, I put out an anonymous survey to listeners and to program directors in anesthesiology to say, Hey, I'm interviewing Matt Wicks and, uh, you know, from radar, what would you like me to ask him? And the number one most common thing people said is exactly that. How can other departments other than Michigan and Wash U get involved in radar? So one obvious answer, which you just touched on is, you know, go to the website and see what's there. And it's all kinds of resources. You'll see highlighted programs that other people are doing. Is there a more formal way uh, or is it, is it, does it not, is there no kind of reason for that, but is there a more formal way for other programs to say, or other departments to say, we want to be a part of this, or is it, you know, is it more just like, Hey, take advantage of the resources we're, we're putting out there. It's it's a great question. And actually uh, when you emailed me the other day, it kind of spurred me to think, you know, what does that look like? So I'll take the easy answer, which is, I don't know yet. Um, You know, I think that, a dream and aspiration of mine would be we have departments that say, you know, we're officially part of radar. Yeah. And then, but with that comes responsibility, Mm -hmm. right? Responsibility to share resources, um, you know, best practices, highlight a unique, a unique program and kind of commit to saying, we too believe in this mission. We think that our teams will be stronger. Our learners will have a better experience. Our institutions will be more creative and innovative. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we will take better care of patients if we kind of get behind the idea that we need to diversify our field, Yeah, that that that, that matters. So I would encourage departments right now to reach out to me, reach out through the radar website um, so we can think about what's it look like to collaborate? You know, how can we be getting together at at meetings, whenever we get to get together at meetings again, which I hope is soon, um, and, and brainstorm, you know, I think it'd be incredible to have a radar, you know, brainstorming group at the ASA where a bunch of people who are interested get together in a room and talk about, all right, what are we doing as a field? How can we nationalize our work? Because the work is hard and there's a lot that can be done. And at times I think that can be paralyzing. I know I felt that before, and I'm certain that others, you know, other institutions and departments feel that as well, where it's, there's so much to do that I can't do anything. Yeah. And if that's, and if that's our mindset, 20 years from now, we're going to look back and say, why haven't things changed? You know, why have we not, why didn't we reach those goals we, we set for ourselves? By working together, I think that we actually can start to move the field. And it's slow and steady progress. You know, I think one uh, interesting idea, and I 
sit in a group of other associate chairs who are really focused on DEI as well around the institution is how do you sustain momentum? You know, if you look back at the last year plus, you know, racial reconciliation has really been in the news. You think about the murder of George Floyd. And really, I think that was a turning point in our country. And there have been many turning points in our in our country's history. Uh, But that is one where front and center, you know, collided with the pandemic to say we aren't there yet and we, we have a lot of work to do. But the the fear can be that everything is just a flash flash in the pan, that it's the the right thing to do at that time. And so there's a lot of momentum and energy and resources. And then six months later, it's like, oh, we're kind of just back to, we can't keep it going. Our goal would be that radar is a, you know, a mechanism to keep it going, right? To have regular events and programming and engagement in it addition of resources so that we can actually have that slow incremental change. Maybe that's my personality, uh, but I believe deep down that it has to be kind of the slow and constant versus the big, 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 and then nothing. Um, you know, I look back at our launch to me, that was a big, that was a big night. It was, you know, really exciting. Um, and so it's a combination of the two, but then how do we do the slow, steady work, um, together to advance our field. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think so, first of all, I love the idea of radar as almost like an organization that, you know, provides, Hey, you, if you want to be a part of this, here's some things you need to do both because these are the right things to do. And then it's almost like group accountability, right? Then the people who are members hold each other accountable. For example, the approach to interviews that you've taken, we've taken the same one of having training for the people who are doing the interviews, standardizing the questions that we ask so that we can have a more unbiased approach. And then, as you said, you know, kind of having this culture around being uh, discussing how bias plays a role. Um, But you could have a variety of things that that are kind of best practices that people would do as a way to, you know, be able to gain membership into this. So there's lots of exciting things. Hang in there. We'll be back with Dr. Wixon in just a minute. Stay with us. Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
I want to um, turn back to your kind of prong one about recruitment and and say and uh, touch on the launch event you guys had, which was fantastic. And for those who weren't able to be there, it was this really wonderful panel discussion with with a variety of folks, faculty, and and one I believe resident who was on the panel. Yes. Um, who and she was just amazing. I mean, what an incredible woman! I don't know her at all personally, but I'm just from what the way she's so eloquent, so so uh, you know, incredibly uh, depth of life experience, and and was just the things she said. It was like I wanted to write them all down. It was just wonderful. Yeah, she she is amazing. I always joke with her that I will be working for her someday, someday soon, and I believe deep down she will be a chairwoman of anesthesiology, dean of a medical school, president of the United States someday. She is a remarkable individual. Absolutely. And so, and I, I have been at a few different events and what, you know, we had a, for example, a screening of black men in white coats here, which was fantastic. Um, a lot of really powerful messages. So I don't want to say for sure. I got, I'm remembering this from her, but I think so that she talked about her struggle, I believe to get into medical school. Is that right? Yeah. And, and so I think a big part of it was scores, right? It was standardized test scores. And this, I think, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this, because I think when we think about recruitment, right, this is such a key part that right now, and I, I hate that it's this way, but right now, the, the gatekeepers are the tests. And if you can't score well on the MCAT, your chances of getting into medical school at all, let alone a good medical school, are low. And if you can't score well on your USMLEs, your chances of getting into a, a, the residency of your choice are much lower. And in anesthesiology, because of the basic exam, we've got this, you know, kind of built in barrier. We can't ignore scores even if we want to, because if you can't pass the basic exam, you can't graduate. And then we've not done you or us any favors. Right. So how do we deal with it's great to get high school students interested in medicine. How do we help them? You know, you've got these amazing people like the woman on your panel, right? That just clear, I mean, as you said, she's going to be whatever she wants to be, chair of a department, president of the United States, right? No question. And yet she almost didn't even get to be a doctor because of the exam. So how right. do we, how do we get rid of that or, or attenuate that as a barrier to these amazing people, especially when we know from studies that have been done that these tests are biased? Absolutely. It is one of the biggest things that keeps me up at night when I'm laying in bed, you know, unable to sleep to think about how do we go about this, what feels like insurmountable obstacle to be completely honest. You know, obviously we've talked about the bias in the tests. You're a program director. I'm sure you think about the bias in step one and step two all the time. You know, and I, I always say to medical students, I, you know, I run our, our clerkship and do a lot of advising for them is, you know, especially if they come to me as a low step one, they say, can I be an anesthesiologist? And I say, yes, you can. When I'm working with residents, I promise you, I, I have no idea who got a 280 and who got a 195. I honestly could not tell you who did what on one of these standardized tests. So the question is, how do we start pushing back against these, these gatekeepers? Step one is going to go to pass fail. You know, I'm sure that's something that keeps you up at night is how do you start screening? Because for better or worse, they're used as, they're used as gates. You know, how do you, you can't look at 5,000 applications. So how do you start thinking about creating the class, attracting the class, recruiting the future of anesthesia, but getting rid of some of these biased gates. Um, 
I think one thing you have to think about is it's going to be more intensive, right? And it, when I say intensive, it's going to take time and it's going to take money, right? Because time is money, money is time, whatever, however you want to say it, you're going to have to screen people differently than you've done before. We are going to have to screen differently. And by screen, I don't mean screen in or screen out, but try to figure out who you want to interview. You can't interview everybody. Right. So how, how do you approach that? And one of my fears is that, you know, programs will just start moving to step two as, as, as the new gate, because it seems too hard to try to figure out a, a different way to, to do this. Um, but I would say, start thinking now about what are the ideal attributes? You know, how could we leverage technology to start thinking about how to, how to screen using something they write, right? Their own words as, oh, they're highlighting themes that we, that we think are important and maybe they'll gel in our program. Cause every program's got its feel. It's got its own goals and many of them are the same, but some of them, some of them are different. And then I think it's asking the question, why, why do we have this test? You know, if step one was initially kind of created as a competency exam, you know, not a knowledge exam, you know, I couldn't tell you how it scored. I don't know if the difference between a 220 and a 260 is two questions or, you know, 25% of the test. I literally have no idea. Yeah. Right. Do you know? Do you know the difference? No idea. No idea. And so how do we start having that conversation to say, okay, let's, let's maybe take the curtain down a little bit and understand what's the motivation behind it. Similarly for the basic exam, I was in the first cohort to, to take the basic exam. You know, I'm, I'm pleased that it's a, a pass fail test, you know, but are we tracking then the outcomes to say that we're getting, you know, safer clinicians that our patient outcomes are better because we've added the basic exam. And if five or 10 years from now, we can't see a difference, then I think we need to be able as a field and as a, you know, accrediting body to say, is this the right thing to do or not? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, every time I talk to folks from the ABA uh, who are involved in this testing, I, I bring up a couple of things. One is how do we justify a, a standardized test as the gatekeeper when we know they're biased and when we know it forces us, right? It, it, for an anesthesiology program to take someone who scored a 195 on step one is to say they are at high risk to fail the basic, right? So you, they may be the most amazing person you've ever met, but they may not be able to pass the basic. They might be someone who could be the best doctor we've ever had. And yet, if they can't pass the basic, they'll, they cannot graduate from residency. And so, you know, that's a huge problem. So what do you do as a program? We'd love to ignore that score. We'd love to say, who cares? It was 195. They passed. But if they can't pass the basic, then that's a problem. So, so how do we justify it? And number two, we've gone to this great system, I think, for, for faculty, right, in MOCA, where it's not a big, high stakes, every 10 years, giant exam. It's this ongoing mocha minute these questions where you know as long even if you get them wrong as long as you learn from it you get you see the question again down the road as long as you show you've learned and improved that's great you're not you're fine right why isn't that 
true for residents too. Why do we make residents take some big, giant, high stakes exam that's more dependent on their ability to take standardized testing than it is to actually have the knowledge when we have this other system that seems to work great? And I really hope they're starting to consider that and that maybe we're going to move to a, a place where we have put less emphasis on these standardized tests uh, that they clearly more than anything else test how good you are at standardized tests. Exactly. And that's the problem when you're talking all the way back to high school is to me, what a standardized test shows me is that you're good at taking standardized tests. That's, yep. that's all it is. And I think there's an, what we're losing in that is you know, trainees and learners really learning to pass a test, not learning to, to be a better doctor. And we're using medical assessment that doesn't reflect the reality in which we live now, which is if you're in the ICU and you can't remember something, you probably pull out your iPhone and Google it really fast. You know, there is an inability for the human brain to hold everything in it. We just can't do it. And so why are we assessing people based on, you know, kind of a notion that they should be able to recall all these things when you can look up that equation, right? Yep. And it actually re reduces the risk of error if you look it up. Yes, or we want you to look a, it up. A calculator. Yeah. We want you to look it up. Yeah. And so I just think that we have got to move past this system where what is valued is an ability to answer a multiple choice question and really then de-emphasizes creativity, innovation, resourcefulness. You know, 10 times out of 10, I would rather work with the resident who got a 200 on step one, but will show up every single day for work, thirsty for knowledge and so focused on patient care. That's who I want to train. That's who 100%. I love working with. That's who I feel inspired by and I learn from, you know, versus the, you know, the, the person who everything's been super easy and they kind of have this mindset of, I just, I'm just, I'm studying for the test because I need to do, do well on the test. Yep. Um, you know, I, it feels to me deep down that all these things are starting to come to a head. Maybe that is youthful uh, ignorance here that, you know, I think that we may have some change, but. I sit on the admissions committee at the University of Michigan. And again, these conversations that we have are, are different than I think they were even, you know, 13 years ago when I was applying to medical school, 14 years ago. You know, here's something I don't talk about very often. I did not do well on the MCAT. I just, I didn't, and I didn't have time to take it again. And, you know, I'm the first in my family to go to college and didn't have anyone around me really who was like, Right. Hey, man, you should like maybe take a gap year mm. and take this again or try to do some research or something like that. You know, I didn't have that luxury. You know, I didn't I couldn't afford to just take a year and maybe do an unpaid internship or something like that. And, you know, I feel very fortunate that the University of Michigan kind of looked at me and said, we think you have it. Yeah. You didn't have the best day there, but your cumulative record in college shows that you're creative and innovative and a hard worker, and we think you're going to add to our class. And I would say the rest has been history, you know, and I have been very motivated by that, actually. And I'm, I like to share that story because, again, in, in medicine, 
we don't like to talk about the things that we didn't do very well. So similarly, as we're, we're discussing feeling embarrassed, if we say the wrong thing, we feel embarrassed to let on that we don't have it all together or that we didn't do well sometime. But by people being honest and vocal about that, I think it can be so inspirational for someone five or 10 or 15 years behind them to say, Oh, they didn't do well on this thing. And, and they, are doing amazing things now. Um, but it takes a level of vulnerability that I'm not certain everyone wants to have. But the more that we do it, I think, again, the more we're going to change the culture of our departments. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. And I couldn't agree more that the only way that we are going to combat imposter syndrome, which is so prevalent in medicine, is exactly as you said, to tell the stories of when we didn't know, when we made a mistake, and to admit when we don't know, right? And it has to start from the top. If you're, if you as a faculty member are willing to say to your residents, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know the answer to that, right? Or I was wrong about that, then they'll feel a little more comfortable when they don't know. And I think you're, you're just exactly right. That's so, so important. Um, I want to ask you, uh, let's go back to kind of the second prong for a second. And you mentioned, and, and complete, I completely agree, that having training for folks so that they know the vocabulary, they know what implicit bias is, they know what microaggressions are, that's so important. There's some data out there that suggests that when you make these sessions mandatory, it can actually produce the opposite result, right? That you can end up with, with people who are resentful and, and therefore they, they are more likely to, to engage in these things. Do you have a, a feeling on that? Should these things be mandatory? Should they be optional? How do we approach that? Wonderful question. I, I think that they should be mandatory in certain situations. So for example, if you are going to be part of a committee that is making decisions, that is steering the department, that is recruiting the next generation, I think that you need to understand how the process has to be different than it's been in the past. So for me, that's a, that's kind of an easy one to say it's mandatory. And if you, if you don't want to go through that, if you don't believe in it, then you're not going to have the opportunity to be part of this shaping. You know, it's, it's personal choice, you know, kind of do what you want to do. But, um, if you want to be part of this leadership role, you've got to understand it because the, to me, the data is pretty overwhelming. We all know deep down that we have biases and that we can all look back in our history and come up with an example where you made a decision or made a comment that was based on one of those biases. So to me, that's, that's a settled fact. We don't need to argue with all that much. For the broader department, I think it's a, it's more nuanced. I think that it should be encouraged. You know, I, I have read those, you know, similar studies about people kind of doubling or tripling or quadrupling down, uh, well, you can't tell me that I'm this, I'm not that, and it being harmful. And I think we need to understand that signal that, that we're hearing and encourage people to try to understand it. And it goes back to that idea of what culture do you want to build? Yeah. And it's going to take years to start you know, turning these giant Titanic-sized ships, departments, institutions, but you've got to start somewhere. And so you make it, you know, something they can learn from. And I think, again, when leaders are honest and open and vulnerable, that's 
inspiring. It's, it's come along with me, not go where I tell you to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that I think is so key. And we've taken the same approach. So, you know, Hopkins for clerkship directors, for program directors, uh, on institution wide, it's mandatory to do implicit bias and microaggressions training for, um, on, on our, we make it mandatory for all interviewers as you, I know have. So I think you're right. Those people who, who, you know, they can opt out, right? You don't have to be an interviewer. Exactly. But if you're going to be an interviewer, you need to do this. I think that's totally fair. And honestly, uh, in my experience, nobody is is resentful of that, right? They understand why this is important and, and they engage. Um, so I, I love that. Um, let me ask you, um, I, I have a couple more kind of audience questions that I'll ask you, but let me ask you first, are there any kind of common questions? And I know Radar is young. It was only launched recently. So, but you know, in the time you've been involved in this work, are there things that come up commonly do you get asked questions by whoever people who visit the radar website who attended the launch just people who are interested um they commonly come up that would be interesting to address i do uh I have, there have been a, a couple of themes that come across i think we've touched on one is how can we be involved and, and hopefully we've impressed upon like we just want to hear from you email me tweet at me show me what you're you're doing let's think of ways that we can create you know, an online collaborative. And while COVID has had so many downsides, one of the positives is it's normal for us to all get on webinars now, right? Our access, our reach is so much greater than it has ever been before. Than I think any of us would have thought of even 18 months ago of let's host a webinar. Myself, I've been like, well, a webinar, I want to get on this thing. You know, right. maybe I'll watch it later. Um, it's just different. We're interacting differently. And I think that that actually adds to the richness and the depth of our interactions um, and our collaboration. So I think that's one thing is let us know what you're doing um, so that we can publicize it so that we can, you know, develop strategic alliances and collaborations um, and think about how to work together, um, you know, and really move the movement forward. That's one thing. I think the other common thing I hear is I don't want to do it wrong. And I then say back, what is it? And they say, well, DEI. And I say, okay. You know, I think first off, thanks for being open to, to saying that. I think that's a really hard thing to verbalize is, you know, what do I as a, you know, cisgender white male have to do with DEI? How can I speak into that space? Um, and I say, you know, first off, kudos for wanting to, to be involved, for understanding that you may not have experienced certain things, but you want to help move this forward, right? You recognize the inequities that exist and you want to be part of the solution. Um, so I, I hear that and I applaud the, I, you know, the sentiment. And I think I then just provide some reassurance of you will do it wrong. I have said the wrong thing, thought the wrong thing, you know, thought I was nailing it, you know, out of the park. And then, nope, that was not right. I was insensitive. I was X, Y, or Z thing. And just normalizing that just like everything else we do, we're not, going to always be perfectly spot on and just accepting that and understanding how in yourself you can 
kind of deal with that and, and move forward. How you can say, I'm sorry, I said that. You know, I can think back to interviewing someone this past year, this incredible applicant, and I asked her a question. And then in her answer, I realized that I was holding a bias about women and their like role in the home. And I instantly felt very embarrassed. You know, I'm the associate chair for diversity. I'm supposed to have figured all this out and, you know, really been the person, this shining example. And I messed up and I immediately apologized to her and said, you know, I was holding a bias that I clearly have in my response to you. I'm sorry. And she was incredibly gracious and, you know, didn't, um, you know, our interview concluded fine. And, you know, I don't think any harm was done, but then I use that example and I share it broadly. I say to people, this is something I did and I did it wrong. You're going to, it's okay. Learn from it and kind of move forward. Um, and also verbalizing, I don't know what your experience has been. Can you tell me what it's been like? You know, I'm not a woman. I don't know what it's like to be a woman in medicine. Yep. Right. So how can I ask that question of you and you can share your story with me and I can start to get an understanding knowing that I will never know what it's like to be a woman in medicine, but I can understand parts of the story and I can reflect on what are the things I do that may make their role in our team harder. You know, I regularly check in with our trainees and say, What's it like being a trainee now? I haven't been a trainee for five years. What are you stressed about? Again, knowing that I was in their role at some point, but I'm not anymore and things are different. I think that is kind of a, a blueprint or a framework for how you can interact with people who are different than you and try to make them feel validated, sponsored, mentored, um, and really empathize with their position and learn from them. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. You know, it's really hard. I think sometimes, you know, you'll have someone uh, that'll come and, and say, you know, so-and-so said this thing and it offended me and now I don't ever want to be around that person again, right? And while I'm sure there are people out there who are intentionally doing stuff, right, it's way more common that they had no idea, right? They had no idea. And so I think that it's it's incredibly hard um, as you just touched on, like I can never know what it's like to be a woman at all or to be a woman in medicine. I can try to learn from the women in my life. I can never know what it's like to be a, a, a non-white person, but I can try to learn from the people I know, right? But I still will never experience it and I'll never know. And so it's incredibly difficult. And I know, you know, that this has come up amongst other white folks who have, exp- who have written into the, to, uh, you know, ask questions. To think, you know, I feel like it's not my place to say to that person, well, what, you know, give them another chance or maybe it wasn't intentional because, you know, people are afraid of, 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 of defending someone who has done some, who has expressed bias, right? So it's, I don't know if you have any advice for, you know, I guess, I guess for white people or for men who, you know, who want to try to promote the things you're saying, but are afraid of being tarred with that same brush of, you know, um, negative bias if they, if they try to promote the idea of, hey, let's give people a chance. Let's, you know, let's try to be, let's try to, uh, you know, teach rather than ostracize, you know, how, how do you, what do you recommend there? It's, it's tricky. It's hard. Uh, it's, it's really, really hard. You know, an example I would use though is, you know, first reflecting in yourself 
figuring out your biases and figuring out how you can start to work to correct them. And what are the little things that you can do day in and day out that will start to elevate the culture and, and change, change your microcosm you live in. So for example, I refer to all my trainees when I'm talking to patients as doctor, you know, here's Dr. Snarskis, you know, here is Dr. Vu and whether they're um, men or women, it's the same because, you know, you and I know, and everyone listening knows that women are treated differently in the hospital. Patients treat them differently. Yep. Um, similarly, my uh, trainees who are, you know, uh, black or brown or, you know, minoritized, same thing. I always use doctor. So I'm using whatever small political clout that I have to ensure they are on the level uh, playing field. And if a patient says something or calls them by their, you know, a trainee by their first name and they haven't been invited to do so by the training, I will correct them. And it's uncomfortable. It doesn't happen all that often, but that's an example of something little you can do day in and day out to promote the culture and to start to build that reputation. So people know like they're not messing around here. You know, they believe in this and they're willing to speak into an uncomfortable situation to try to right a wrong. Now, to answer more specifically your question, you know, how do I not appear like I'm defending them is my advice would be to, to say to the person who is offended or hurt or upset, how can I support you in this? And have them reflect back to you really what they're looking for. Maybe what they're looking for is, you know, you to facilitate a conversation between the two of them. Maybe they just needed to vent. Or maybe they're looking for you, you know, that's an opening for them to then say, you know, this has happened five times with this person over the last year. I have specifically asked them not to make that comment, make that joke, call me X, Y, Z, and they keep doing it. Right. It's an invitation for them to open up to you because mm -hmm. maybe it was a one off or maybe it's a pattern that you can speak into and you can, again, use whatever position or privilege or power that you have to help right that wrong. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I understand the sentiment of, you know, we of the kind of the cancel culture. If you say one wrong thing, then you are forever banished. And to me, that's that's scary, too, because I say wrong things. I mess up. I don't want to be banished. I know my heart. You know, I know my positives. I know my weaknesses. And so, again, trying to just normalize making a mistake. Um, and then it's up to senior leaders, the department as a whole to say, who do we want to be? What are our core values? How does this incident match up against what we say is our core value? You know, egregious things are egregious. And, and deep down, we all know a truly egregious thing when we, when we hear it, when we see it. You get that feeling in the pit of your stomach of, I can't believe that just happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. I completely agree. And I, I think it's so easy to, you know, we hear, for example, sometimes the nurses do X, Y, or Z 
right? And I try to emphasize that while some nurses may do what you're describing, and I'm sure you've experienced it, we, we want to be very careful, right? Because not all nurses and, and we don't, you know, there, there is no the nurses, right? There are people. These are people. Some of them uh, have different biases than others. Some of them may act more, more uh, commonly on their biases and may need more help to realize that and to change. Um, but n- no more than we would like to be said, you know, the anesthesiologists all do X, Y, or Z, or the residents all do X, Y, or Z. You know, nobody wants to be lumped into uh, a group and labeled in, as all people in that group do X, Y, or Z. And so I think a lot of this comes down to being willing to see people as people who are flawed and who most of the time are, if you have a, a, an interpersonal interaction, if you're willing to have a conversation and, and person to person, are willing to see things from another perspective. Not everybody, but a lot. And uh, we, we need, I think we need to back off of the idea of labeling groups and saying, you know, they do this and saying, okay, I had this interaction with this person. I want to talk to them about it or I need help to talk to them about it or I'd like you to talk to them about it. But, you know, having that, that's how people learn. People learn from, from realizing that their actions impact real people and those people have, you know, if you hear about it from that person, it's way more powerful than, than you know, being forced to take some training, right? If, if somebody sits down with me and says, hey, when you said this, it made me feel this way. Wow, is that powerful, right? I may not have realized it, but oh, you know, now I see it and it's real and I see how it impacted you as a person. And that brings it home. And I, I think that's really key to try to facilitate those conversations. Yes, the, the cohorting is so dehumanizing. Yeah. Right. And it's a, I think it's a defense mechanism because we don't want to do the uncomfortable, awkward, hard work of what you're describing that conversation because it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. It's so uncomfortable to have to sit down and say to someone, the thing that you did or said or didn't do or didn't say hurt me. Because it's showing vulnerability. And I think if we could just all show a little more vulnerability and humility, what a different environment in which we would work and learn. And, you know, for our trainees, they'd be able to see like it modeled by the faculty member of, you know, apologizing and saying, you know, I, I got upset there and I shouldn't have, or, you know, I talked about a patient in a way that was, again, dehumanizing the colian 28 not the patient with cholecystitis in or 28 right and it's such a small little thing but it's so powerful and it's those small things again you know a long time ago we talked about how this it's the slow steady progress it's the small words and how we talk and how we interact with people that makes the lasting change not the the big one-time this is it. Now everyone be different. That's not it. And so that's something you can do. You can start modeling that for the people around you, how you're talking about people, how you're saying, you know, I just think that's such a great example of a nurse did that to you, not all the nurses. Yep. Right. Or the doctor said that to you, not all, you know, nephrologists. Right. Right. 
Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, couldn't agree more. Um, the, we've covered almost all the audience questions uh, in everything we've covered already. One other that I think is interesting that I'd love to get your thoughts on. So a few people wrote in, and again, this was anonymous, so I don't know, but I'm assuming these are white male program directors who are saying, you know, okay, if I, I, I'm, I'm, tra- I'm in tune with this, I believe it, I know bias is out there. If I get a negative evaluation about a woman in my, a woman, a female resident in my program or an, an underrepresented minority, I know that that may be fueled by bias, right? It may be influenced by bias. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. But there probably is a point at which, right, they're, they're just like white residents may, may actually have true struggles. It is possible, of course, for women or for underrepresented minority residents to have struggles, right, to be doing something that needs improvement. So how do you know when to kind of say, okay, this isn't all bias, right? There's enough of these, or it's coming from enough diversity of faculty that this is probably something I need to act on. And then how do you address it with that resident with, without um, kind of being labeled as someone who is acting on bias? It's a, it's a tough situation, you know, and I, I see both sides of it, you know, Yes, not everything is bias. Not everything is racially motivated. You know, not everything's motivated by gender or whatever type of diversity you want to talk about. It's not all that. But on the other hand, you know, if you look at national data around residents dismissed from residency, which you're a program director, that's a really big deal. Every yep. single spot is desired, is recruited for, you know, there's a lot of forward momentum to to make people successful in residency, help them be successful and graduate them, you know, to join the workforce that we desperately need. You know, we have an unbelievable physician shortage. We have an anesthesiologist shortage. So every spot really matters. So if you look at the data of the residents who are dismissed, you know, nationally from all training programs, there are some fields in which up to almost 50% of the residents dismissed are residents of color. Right. And I would say that's not an accident. You can't have your workforce be 6% underrepresented minorities, but make up almost 50% of the residents who are dismissed. Right. That's Absolutely. a, that's a problem. Yeah. So I think my suggestion, you know, for that program director would be what's your evaluation process like? Right. What are objective measures and what are subjective? How do you, you know, take the time to reach out to the faculty member who writes that negative evaluation? And I think this should be for actually for all residents, right? Create a process for all residents in which you're evaluating a negative, you know, evaluation and say, walk me through, walk me through this. You know, what did they do? And and if what you're hearing back is, well, I just think they didn't have a good attitude that day, you really have to steer the conversation to the objective, mm-hmm. not the subjective. But that takes time, right? It's a lot of work to do that. Uh, I can only imagine the amount of work it takes, but I actually think that's really important because is it a lack of knowledge on the resident's part that you know, they're unable to, they don't, they don't know the, you know, doses of induction drugs, you know, 
To me, that's a discrete problem we can fix. Is it that they need a reading, a reading plan? You know, right. are they struggling with time management? Is there something going on at home that you didn't know about? You know, these situations are really, really complex. And you have to remember, you did recruit this person at one point. You know, they've been through all these gate, all these gatekeepers, and yet somehow they made it, you know, despite a lot of challenges along the way, potentially. So to really dig into the situation, um, and if it's a one-off bad evaluation, you know, I think if I'm reviewing a medical student evaluation, it's like, oh, yeah, they, they had a bad day. They didn't gel. That's normal. Those kinds of things happen. Um, but take the time to, to reach out, especially if you start seeing a signal um, to say, what is this? And we do root, we do root cause analyses all the time around an operating room mistake or a bad patient outcome. Approach it the same way. What are the root causes here? And if it is, you know, I just believe deep down those signals are going to start showing up. If faculty member X, you know, routinely um, rates your residents of color or female residents or XYZ resident lower than their than their mean, right? Use data. Then you have to say, I see this signal here. What do you think? Right? Have them reflect on it. Similarly, from the resident's perspective, if they're getting, you know, if it's that situation you described where they're just, they are just clearly behind their cohort, you know, having a conversation with them and saying, you know, these are the objective data we're seeing. Here is the subjective comments we're getting. What's your reaction to that? Mm -hmm. And it, it, it almost takes you out of being the judge and the jury and makes you a facilitator of self-reflection and growth. And I think that by doing that process, which again is messy and uncomfortable and, and awkward, you can actually start to get to what's at really going on deep down instead of just saying, Oh yeah, that attending is kind of racist. They just, that's how they are with those residents. Like that's no one you would want to have in your department. And right. as we've talked about, most people aren't blatantly racist, right? It's that they are not anti-racist, that they're not working toward eliminating racism. They're neutral. They're Switzerland. On it. Right. And, you know, you can help them grow in that and say, this is a signal I'm seeing. Have you, what do you think about that? Yep. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Thank you, Matt. So I, I know I've taken a huge amount of your time. Let me just ask you, is there anything we haven't touched on that you, you want to touch on before we move, move forward? I would just thank you for the opportunity to talk about this and really provide a word of encouragement that the progress is, is real, uh, but it's slow and steady and that can be okay. Um, you know, I would kind of recommend to people that it's going to take all of us, you know, there are certainly uh, people of color who aren't interested in being the face or the driver of this work. So that's okay. You know, don't make the assumption that, well, well, you're black and in medicine, of course you, you want to be involved in this, you know, develop structures and systems and committees that are diverse and can work together, you know, kind of moving us forward. And, and just lastly, that, you know, radar is in its infancy, but I believe deep down that it could have the power to really transform 
our teams, our departments, our institutions. And I'm excited for people to partner with us and, and be part of it. Fantastic. We are excited as well and, and thrilled that you're doing this. And and I can't be grateful enough that you took the time to come on the show. So thank you. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something uh, that you'd like to share with the audience, something you've been checking out lately that you've been enjoying? Yes, we are um, big fans of A Handmaid's Tale. So I don't know who listening is a fan of that. If you haven't checked it out, it is incredibly dystopian and Every every time, oh, that was just intense. Um, but season four just came out, so that's been our our jam lately. Is staying up too late at night, eating popcorn, watching The Handmaid's Tale. So I couldn't agree more. My wife and I have watched every episode, although we're we're just now catching up with season four so far. But it is it is such a disturbing show, but it was so well done, and it really makes you think. Um, yeah, we've, we've really enjoyed it too. Um, I'll recommend, uh, if you haven't checked out, uh, HBO did a documentary called Tiger about Tiger Woods. And it's just a two-part uh, documentary, uh, about an hour and a half each episode. So it's about three hours total. And it really is well done. It, it highlights kind of um, how disturbing and difficult his his life was in terms of, uh, you know, growing up with the pressures that were put on him from from really about birth. Um and also re- kind of reminds you how unbelievably dominant he was at the time he he you know kind of late 90s early 2000s uh and and how the pressures of celebrity and all that play in and how frail you know people can be and and the mistakes people can make and it's well done um and i think worth a worth a watch whether you like golf or not so i i recommend that too well matt Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I'm just incredibly grateful. And I think this will be a really powerful uh, episode for people to listen to. And I'm sure people will want to get involved in Radar. Thanks so much for having me. All right. That was fantastic. What an interesting and deep discussion. I really hope that you all got as much out of that as I did. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. Leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter, I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And of course, you can join the Facebook group and participate there. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash or looking for Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already become patrons and already made donations. We really appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to our fantastic team. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. April Liu is our social media manager, and Dr. Kimia Kashkuli is our former social media manager who's still helping out with the show. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Matt Wixon, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. 
by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.